Location matters. That's what we all hear. And, and there's truth to that. But it's a truth that speaks to a lot more than home prices or rent. That's right. For residents, it also speaks to the opportunity for social and economic mobility. And we can understand that in the abstract, but, but what data can we look at to understand the geography of opportunity? And with that data, what can we learn about what can be done to increase opportunity in more places? Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, we're going to take a look at the geography of opportunity and the role that location plays in upward mobility. There's one organization that has done an incredible amount of work to further understanding of this important topic, Opportunity Insights. We are thrilled to be joined by David Williams, the Director of Policy Outreach at Opportunity Insights. Opportunity Insights is a research and public policy lab based at Harvard University, dedicated to using big data to improve upward mobility in America. David's focus has been on both the research side and creating and leading partnerships with communities across the country. Before joining Opportunity Insights, David served as a senior advisor to the mayor of Detroit. David was a member of the mayor's economic development team, managing large-scale real estate and community revitalization projects neighborhood planning initiatives, and policies related to economic mobility, land use, and equitable development. This is going to be a fantastic discussion. David, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into the discussion today. But, but first, can we start with some background on Opportunity Insights? You know, so what do you do? What do you cover? And, and how did it come about? Absolutely. Um, so you know, as you mentioned, um, we're a research and policy lab that's based at Harvard. And the basic idea is, you know, how do we use big data? How do we use scientific inquiry to study issues of social importance, like economic mobility, like inequality, like poverty? Um, and my role as the director of policy outreach is to help take that research and really help translate it for an audience of policymakers, right? People who can use that research to have impact on the ground, but also to think of ways to create partnerships with those same folks who are doing that work every day. Um, it's kind of a funny story. So, you know, I was serving in the mayor's office in Detroit before coming to Opportunity Insights. And I remember a few years ago, I was talking with a colleague and as we were doing a lot of our place-based revitalization work, you know, really trying to, you know, change the built environment, we were trying to think around, you know, how do we make sure that the work we're doing, you know, really has transformative impacts on the actual people who we're working with, right? Not just the places, right? How do we make sure that, you know, those residents who've been with us through the good times and the bad times, right? Those most vulnerable families and children, right? They're really benefiting from some of the good things that we're starting to see in the community. And we actually, you know, had read some of the work by Professor Raj Shetty, one of the co-founders of Opportunity Insights, that, hey, you know, we should just call this guy up and really figure out, you know, what we need to be doing to make sure we're having this impact. But, you know, day to day, you're like, you're very busy. You don't, you know, kind of reach out to that famous professor at Harvard. So it was, you know, kind of like a nice coincidence or kind of, you know, moment of luck or serendipity when, when I was looking to make a move back out to the East Coast, you know, ended up, um, you know, seeing that Opportunity Insights was, you know, looking to expand their work and kind of build on their policy work. And I think, you know, you know, my fit and my work in Detroit was a good match for what they were trying to do across the country. Now that, that's exciting. Like, 
taking that data and and turning it into action. And you know, one one of the key points uh, you all stress is economic mobility. So can we talk about that concept a little bit and and some of what you found in the data? Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. I think it was especially interesting for me coming from a place like Detroit, right? A place that was, you know, back in 1930s, 40s, and 50s, right? A place that really personified the American dream. It was where, you know, millions of people were going for economic opportunity. And I think it's something that we see in the data is that, right, this idea of the American dream, you know, one conception of it is the idea that if you work hard, if you provide for your children, that they'll grow up to be more successful than you, right? They'll grow up to earn more than you or more than their parents. And what we see in the data using historic IRS records is that for individuals who were born in the 1940s, that idea of the American dream was almost a guarantee. So 92% of individuals born in the 1940s went on to earn more than their parents to have a higher standard of living. But that's changed dramatically, right? So much so that for folks who are in the job market today, folks like me who were born in the 1980s, that guarantee of prosperity, of upward mobility, is more or less a coin flip. Right, So there's a 50-50 shot whether or not you will now grow up to earn more than your parents. And I think in many ways, that's at the core of a lot of the political and cultural frustration that we see today. Right, This fact that this idea, this kind of assumption of upward mobility and prosperity has become so fleeting for so many. Um, and, you know, one other stat that can kind of help, you know, crystallize this concept is, right, you know, what's the idea that you know, someone who grows up in a low-income household whose, you know, family is making in, you know, the bottom 20% of the income distribution, you know, right, what's the chance that that child can grow up to become a high-income adult? And in the U.S., it's only 7.5%, but it's actually 9% in the U.K. It's almost 12% in Denmark. It's over 13% in Canada, actually over 15% in Sweden, right? So, you know, almost like this idea of the American dream, right? Is it the American dream anymore when we're seeing other countries are really able to support their low-income families and children much more successfully. Yeah, and that is uh, that is um, humbling and, and sobering to hear. And uh, as, you, as we started out in the intro, it's, you know, the location can be a driver of this. And you talked about location around, uh, around the world with comparison to other countries. Um, but you get really granular information on, on how it stands across the U.S. as well, right? Yeah, so some of our recent research it, you know, looks at these trends and opportunity, but your point looks at them geographically within the U.S. And I think what was really surprising to us is that you know beyond these temporal trends, right, we see huge disparities in opportunity across the country. Um, and so we have a tool called the Opportunity Atlas where we can show all this data, but it's basically based on looking at outcomes of 20 million kids who grew up in the 90s. And we're able to use IRS records linked to Census Bureau data. And we're able to basically, you know, pinpoint where kids grew up. We can link them to their parents. So we know how much their parents made when they were growing up. We know where they grew up, right? The neighborhoods of their youth. And we can follow them into adulthood. So we can see how much they're earning by the time they're in their mid-30s. And what we see is that, you know, for places like the Southeast, um, we see much lower rates of economic mobility, right? So places like Charlotte, places like at Atlanta, right? Kids who grow up in low-income families in, the, in these com- communities, on average, tend to remain low-income and they're low-income adults. 
Whereas in the in the Great Plains, um, on on the coast, you know, our maps show us that right these kids, right kids who are growing up in similarly low income families, on average have much higher outcomes. Right, they're on average earning upwards of thirty, forty, and fifty thousand dollars. Right, so you know, it really looks at the importance of place and geography. And something we see is that it's not just at the regional level, but within every community. Right, we see this, this similar range of outcomes. Right, so places that are just a few miles apart within the same community have very different outcomes for the kids who grow up there. I think it really speaks to the importance of neighborhoods, the importance of environment, and how that can tangibly impact kids' lives in ways that we're able to literally measure you know, 10, 15, and 20 years down the road. Now, there, are, there, are, there are a few places to go from, from that. And so maybe I might start at the, at the regional one, because it does strike me. I and mean, one of the things one, one might assume, right, is that you know the coastal markets and and uh, even like cities like Charlotte and and Atlanta where where you see growth uh, uh, excitement attention that those are places that have lower economic mobility than some places in the middle of the country where um, the first assumption might not be for uh, for great economic mobility so so what accounts for that difference yeah that's a really great point and something we did too was you know let's look at these traditional measures of economic um, opportunity, right? So, you know, job growth, right? Like you assume that in a place that has a healthy economy where jobs are plentiful, you're going to see better outcomes. But to your point, right, places like Charlotte, places like Atlanta, places that have grown tremendously over the past 10, 20 years, right? They still have some of the lowest rates of economic mobility and something that, you know, we've seen through some of our work with partners down in Charlotte, but through other data analysis is that, right, yeah, there are a lot of new jobs in a place like uptown Charlotte, Right, but those jobs are going to people who are moving into the community. Right, they're not accessible to those middle and lower income families and children who are, you know, growing up literally, um, you know, you know, just down the road. You know, I think something we see is that communities that have higher levels of social capital, um, communities that have more socioeconomic integration, right, are places where we see higher levels of economic mo- mobility. Um, and I think something that our research points to, right, is that. Right. It's, again, it's not just about jobs or the location of jobs, but it's really about human capital development. Right? I think these places that are investing in families and children successfully, right, you know, they're kind of creating folks, creating citizens who are able to be successful in those communities or who can actually move to other places and be successful as well. So I think a lot of our research points to right, you know, not just some of these more traditional surface level indicators of economic prosperity, you know, but, but, but things that really drive human capital development within communities. And so what what are some of those indicators? It's really interesting um, when we dive down into the local level. Um, so, you know, one thing we see is that places that have, and this probably isn't very surprising, but places that have um, higher quality schools, especially schools that support low-income children, you know, have high rates of upward mo- mobility. Um, places that have lower poverty rates um, have high rates as well. But I, th- and I think that's important too, because thinking about, right, making sure that we don't have these pockets of concentrated poverty. Right, you know, places where we actually see a mix of low, middle, and higher income folks are places where we see better outcomes. Um, I think one stat that I find particularly interesting is that communities that have a higher proportion of two parent households, um, so you know, kind of places where there's more family stability throughout the community, have better outcomes. And, and actually, a, a added point to that is that we see that in communities that have a higher proportion of black fathers present. All those young black men, regardless of their own family circumstances, have higher outcomes. And I think that's a really interesting point is that 
right? Just being exposed to people that you can relate to, that can model pathways to college and to stable careers seems to have very tangible impact. I mean, I think similarly, um, you know, we do some other research that actually looks at rates of inventorship, um, you know, people who are filing patents. And we see that in communities that have more female inventors, all the young women in that community are more likely to become inventors themselves and even become inventors in those same fields as those women in their community. Um, so I think it really speaks to the potential for role models and kind of being in places where you're exposed to opportunity and to stable pathways. Um, you know, I think that's an interesting thing that I think also, you know, I think has implications for policy move, moving forward. That is uh, so many, you know, interesting factors driving there. Uh, at, at jumping back to something that you mentioned before, like you said, if there's um, uh, black fathers present, I imagine, you know, we, that uh, you, you're able to cut the data by by race and by gender and all of those kind of things. And the, these differences across those characteristics are becoming uh, so important to look at these days. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you see in the data there? Oh, yeah. And I think that's a really important point. And one thing that I think, you know, we try and do opportunity insights is, you know, all this big data can be a bit overwhelming. So how do we make it accessible to a broader audience? So all of our data is available at our site, opportunityatlas.org. And you can look at every community across the country. You can dive into your own neighborhood to get a better understanding of these outcomes. But as you mentioned, right, the power is that we're able to link IRS and Census Bureau data. And that census data helps us break these outcomes down by race and gender. And something that we, we see dramatically across the country are these disparate outcomes based on race, right? So within almost every region, every city, even within the same neighborhoods, black and white children, specifically black and white boys who grow up in similarly um, low-income households have very different outcomes, right? You know, young white men end up growing up to earn much more than their black counterparts in almost you know, every community, every neighborhood across the country in a way that, you know, it almost looks like two Americas, right? That our communities are impacting black and white men specifically in very different ways. An interesting thing is that when you actually control for, you know, household income growing up, we actually see very similar outcomes in terms of wages for black and white women. Um, so I think that speaks to, you know, really the unique ways that our communities are impacting black boys specifically, you know, be it the criminal justice system, um, unequal discipline in schools, employment discrimination. You know, I think this data can, you know, hopefully forces us to think critically around the systems in place that are specifically impacting black men and hopefully making us think more critically around, you know, what we need to be doing um, to support black men in our communities as we're working through these systemic issues. Yeah. And I think that uh, the great thing about the data too, is you not only identify this, but then it does, you know, point to some solutions as well. Right. Cause I know, I know you say that like, if you, if you take a person and you move them to an area of opportunity and, and depending on even time and line, uh, you know, at the age the kid moves, it matters. Maybe, maybe you can speak through uh, how that works. I think, you know, one point, because of course all of our work, you know, we're always attempting to be as scientifically rigorous as possible. So something we see in the data is that the outcomes we see are not just due to certain kinds of people living in certain kinds of places, but it's really about the causal impact in part of neighborhoods. And part of how we see that is that we can actually look at millions of families who moved across neighborhoods throughout the country. And something we see is that even within the same family, 
right? One family makes a move. Um, let's say they move to a place that had lower outcomes to a place that has higher outcomes, right? That family makes that move. And actually that older sibling um, who had less exposure to let's call it that higher opportunity place, they actually have lower outcomes on average than their younger sibling who had more exposure. So I think it really speaks to that causal impact of neighborhoods, not just that certain types of people you know, have landed in certain places for myriad reasons. Um, I think second, one interesting thing we can do is actually you know, look at some of these places that have really high outcomes and try and learn from them. I think especially for Black men, I think it's you know, a sobering um, statistic when you look at the disparate outcomes for them, but there are certain places that have relatively high outcomes, right? So um, in Silver Spring, Maryland, and some of the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., parts of Brooklyn and Queens in New York, and also in parts of actually western Alabama and places outside Opelousas, Louisiana, kind of have surprisingly high outcomes um, for, for black men. I think those are places that you know, we should be kind of trying to understand what's going on there. Um, but then I think you know, some of the other interesting work we've done is when we can pinpoint some of these high outcome places, you know, how do we make sure that low-income families have access to these neighborhoods, right? You know, this country has a long history of residential disc discrimination, redlining, right? Lots of things that have oftentimes kept out low-income families and families of color from some of these more affluent, higher opportunity places. And so we've done some work with the um, housing authorities in Seattle and King County to really explore how we can make sure that low-income families and families that are using affordable housing resources really have access to a broad range of neighborhoods, especially those places where we see better outcomes for low-income children. Yeah. So, so let's talk more about what you've been doing in, in King County. How does that, how's that been working? Yeah, no. So it's been, I think, you know, a really great experience for our organization. It's called Creating Moves to Opportunity. And it was really kind of an iterative process with um, folks in the industry who've been doing this work for a very long time, who I think when they saw our data on the impact of neighborhoods, right, I think it affirmed a lot of what they saw in their day-to-day -day work. And so we ended up partnering with, again, the Seattle and King County Housing Authorities in Washington to think through, right, what are the supports that families might need who are using housing choice vouchers coming off the, the, the Section 8 wait list to make sure that they have access to these neighborhoods. And so what it came down to was we provided housing counselors um, who would support families um, through the rental search process. We engaged with, with landlords um, to make sure um, you know, they were aware of the program to help cut through some of the red tape associated with the program. And we also provided some short-term financial assistance um, for costs associated with moves being made um, during the process. And so what we saw was that for family, and we, and we basically ran a randomized evaluation to really like see what the impact was, could be of these different programs and services. And what we saw was that for the families who received these services, they were almost four times more likely to move to these higher opportunity areas. And I think, you know, according to the data, right, these moves, if these families stay there, the children who grew up in these neighborhoods on average will earn you know, hundreds of thousands more in lifetime earnings because that move was made, right? So this is not, you know, just an issue of equity or fairness. But this is really something that can drive long-term outcomes, increase economic mobility, and reduce poverty. Um, so I think, you know, to see these dramatic um, increases in these opportunity moves or families live in these opportunity places based on, you know, like a relatively short and somewhat inexpensive um, intervention was really heartening. I think was really a great example of kind of both melding the data and research 
with the kind of, you know, with the on the ground perspective of practitioners and the insights from families receiving these services. So David, one thing I, I want to touch on a bit with these programs is how do we do it at scale? Like how, how do we take those things that, that you're learning in individual communities and, and uh, try and make the lessons nationwide or apply them, them in more places? So I think that's why combining both the research and the practitioner perspective is important, right? To create these proof points that have a rigorous evaluation behind them, I think that can help build that conversation to scale. So one thing we saw is that in part because of the, of the success of, of CMTO, there's now an actual national housing choice voucher mobility demonstration that's being funded with $50 million through HUD, right? And so it's basically taking that CMTO model and, and allowing other communities to try it out as well to help build the case for even more funding and for scale. And I think, right, this is a model that I think could be applied to other areas as well, right? So, you know, you actually start with that local proof point, show that something works, and that can help build the case um, to make it, you know, a more standard federal program that can impact not just dozens or hundreds of people, but can impact thousands and millions. All right. Now, that's that's a that's a fantastic point and, and excited to hear that that there's work going on to scale this already. Yeah, no, we're I think we're definitely excited, too, that, you know, it, it really shows that, you know, I think our whole mission is you you leverage the research to have impact. And so, you know, when you're able to kind of, you know, have that successful randomized evaluation, randomized pilot, and that, you know, helps push that conversation forward, I think that's, you know, that's what we hope, you know, our work is able to do more of. Yeah, that that's really incredible. And and so I, I do want to just uh, zoom in on a couple points there, though, with uh, sort of the barriers you saw, um, to help to moving to opportunity. And then the it, it sounds like like you identified a few key things that are necessary to overcome those barriers. So can we get into that just a little bit more? Definitely. Um, I think, right, it builds on a lot of research that's been done in this space. I think it was the the Boston Fed a couple of years ago found that, you know, black families faced higher barriers in the search process. There was a Newsday investigation um, in Long Island that showed that real estate agents were discriminating against and steering, you know, home buyers of, of color. And I think, right, something that we saw in our research and our work was that, right, families who are using these vouchers, right, they're facing a lot of issues, right? These are, you know, low-income families, you know, oftentimes single mothers with kids, right, who don't have a lot of time, who don't have a lot of money, who are dealing with lots of other stressors. And I mean, think about, you know, for you or me, like getting a house, finding an apartment is a difficult process for anyone, right? So when you're thinking about like trying to get a job, Maybe, you know, your, your child might have special, special, special needs, right? You're, like you're worried about landlords who might discriminate against you or they might not respect you. Like these are all very stressful processes. And I think what we saw through CMTO, creating most opportunity was, you know, having a really motivated caseworker to walk you through the process was really essential, right? Because that person was able to support you throughout whatever your individual issue was. You know, maybe it was the fact that, you know, you just weren't familiar with some of these higher outcome neighborhoods. You know, maybe you were kind of intimidated about, you know, working with these landlords who aren't from your community. Um, maybe transportation was an issue, right? So, you know, it wasn't just one particular issue, but it was having someone who could support you throughout the entire process and help you navigate whatever you needed throughout this search process. So I think you're really having that customized assistance really seemed to be key to making this pilot project a success. And I think possibly, right, I think that insight could be relevant 
to a lot of other types of programs, right? Where that, you know, where that last mile of delivery, you know, can sometimes make or break a program, right? So I think, you know, given how complicated rental markets are and finding new apartments and all these things, I think having a good program associated with a really motivated caseworker, um, you know, really seemed to be what helped drive the success of this program. That's fantastic. And to, to hear about this just in terms of, uh, I know in, in Freddie Mac and being involved in the housing finance system, there's often a lot of discussion of moving um, from, from rental to ownership as, as the way of opportunity. I think this is really fantastic how, as you said before, it's kind of, you're taking somebody who's continuing to rent, but you're actually putting them in a place where they're able to build human and social capital. And, and that provides the opportunity I know that like, uh, and we've talked about the data some, I know that this gets uh, in, in some specific areas, but uh, like how granular, like how low level, uh, you know, distance from place to place, um, how close are we talking in some of these areas are? Yeah. So, you know, for our data, you know, we look at the census track level um, and, you know, you can, you can look almost at any community across the country and I'm pretty sure that you're going to be able to, to find neighborhoods that sit directly next to one another where you see very different outcomes across a street or across different neighbor neighborhoods. And again, like sometimes this is due to, you know, things like redlining or disinvestments in neighborhoods, right? Where sometimes you know, there might be a freeway that is separating two neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so like it, it, it is pretty, it is pretty amazing how important, you know, a mile can be when it comes to kids outcomes. You know, you know, we were, when we first launched the Atlas, we were looking at um, neighborhoods in Brownsville in New York, right? And there was, you know, kind of on one side of, of a street called Dumont Avenue, right? There's a kind of public housing project where we see very low outcomes. And literally on the other side of the street, right, for the young black men and women growing up there, right, they have outcomes that are five and $10,000 higher than their counterparts, literally, you know, like a, you know, less than a few block, blocks away. Um, so I think it really is interesting to see those granular differences. And I think, you know, to your point, I think it's such an interesting parallel, right? Where, you know, things like, you know, you know, home buying assistance and kind of support in the home buying process you know, helps people build their financial equity. Um, whereas, you know, this tweaked something like the housing choice voucher program, right? Where, you know, we spend billions of dollars every year on extremely important resources to, you know, prevent homelessness and give people housing st- stability. And by adding this facet to it, by increasing access to certain types of neighborhoods, you know, we're actually, we're actually able to kind of build in some of that human capital development, you know, that hopefully means that when someone, when someone grows up, they won't be as reliant on some of these public assistance programs. And one of the things that, that's just really apparent uh, when, when looking at the history is, is how deliberate the segregation was. Mm. And what you're talking about here, too, is how deliberate breaking that down needs to be as well. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that I think is absolutely important. I think and something we see, right, is that, you know, we spend so much money on the housing choice voucher program, on programs like the low income housing tax credit, because they're extremely important, right? I mean, so many people are, are, are housing unstable in this country, but in many ways, because of that historical like legacy, right? Sometimes these programs are actually reconcentrating poverty and exacerbating these same patterns of segregation. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of recent work too by people like um, Andre Perry at the Brookings Institution that, you know, there's that historical legacy, but there are other factors that kind of keep these segregated communities in, in, in place, right? So I think if we want to reverse them, 
I think you're exactly right. We have to be taking very proactive measures to make sure that we're leveraging these programs to kind of reverse the trends that we've seen historically and those trends that still very much exist today. You know, can we can we touch on on um, another aspect of this, which is not the moving to opportunity aspect, but the furthering opportunity in place aspect? What is what are you seeing from the data that that you're working with and from your experience? That are there lessons that that can be learned and, and applied deliberately in in those areas that are not areas of opportunity today? Yeah, that that's such an Im- important point because. I think, of course, deconcentrating poverty, creating more diverse neighborhoods, you know, supporting families and, and allowing them to live wherever is best for them is extremely important. You know, making sure that we're creating opportunity everywhere, I think, is just as, if not more important. I think and something the data shows us, too, is that right when we kind of look at, at these families who move across places, we can see that there's a cumulative effect of the exposure to that place where you live. And I think what that means is that, right, we can intervene and change outcomes in in place. Right? I think there still needs to be a lot of research around you know, how do you sustainably support and revitalize neighborhoods in ways that, you know, don't just displace families, but actually support those families, you know, help them stay in these places and, you know, help increase um, their, life out, their life outcomes. Right? But you, ha- you have great examples like the Harlem Children's Zone in New York, um, the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative in 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 Boston, right? There's a, there's a lot of great grassroots work happening across the country, right? But this work is also very difficult to measure. I'm actually, I think Harlem Children's Zone, you know, they're launching an institute now where they're actually going to kind of take some of their lessons that they've learned in Harlem and support other communities who want to kind of do similar work in a sustainable way. So I think that's a lot of our research is kind of looking at you know, how we can use our big data um, techniques to help understand, right, what are these long-term impacts? You know, how do you sustainably revitalize and support neighborhoods in the, in the long run? But I think also there are examples of great programs, right? I mean, like, you know, early ed, you know, has tangible impacts, like quality um, pre-K, um, high-quality teachers, our research shows, has long-term outcomes, right? You have um, sectoral employment and workforce programs like um, Year Up, Right, programs that kind of support disengaged youth, kind of put them in in in, in, in really high quality career paths. Right, those can all really change life outcomes. So I think both that combination of you know really great work happening at the grassroots neighborhood level, but also individual programs that can be plugged in in a geographically focused way, I think are all you know promising efforts to help us think through how we can sustainably create um, opportunity in place, you know, while also promoting desegregation and deconcentrating poverty. I, I think it's worth just reflecting on some of what you've said, and and so much of it is so compelling on 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 you know moving from place and and pr- providing opportunity, and it's all these these and and that there's actually actionable things that can happen, and uh, and this is truly you know based not on 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 your views but objective looks at the data, which I think is fantastic, and has been going back a while. I know then. You know, we are all affected by the pandemic, and uh, and that kind of changes, you know, everybody's situation. And uh, and I know that through um, you, you, you've started something as well on track the recovery, in, in which you're looking at the the effects of the pandemic uh, also at a geographic level, right? Yeah, no, that's right. I think you know it's interesting. So you know, we're able to look at these long term longitudinal outcomes by using government data in the Opportunity Atlas. But I think the pandemic created almost a different kind of issue for all of us, right? I think it's it's been so unprecedented 
and so fast moving that you know you had resources like the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center that provided real time health data. But what we saw that right there wasn't something similar on the economic side, right? So this this crisis was impacting our community so quickly, but you know we didn't have a real time sense of how we were being impacted economically. So we ended up um, partnering with several several private sector companies um, to use their data to help us get a better real-time sense of how COVID was impacting our economies and therefore our communities, similarly at that local level. And it's you know available online at tracktherecovery.org. Um, and I think you know something that we saw was that, you know, of course COVID impacted all of us, but it actually kind of had some some effects that were a bit, um, you know, that were somewhat non-intuitive, in, in, right? So something we saw was that, you know, it was actually the economies of higher income communities were in some sense impacted most um, because it, you know, many ways, because this is the health crisis, right? People, you know, stopped going out to eat at the local restaurants or going out to their local, their local bars. It was actually kind of high income folks whose spending dropped the most, but then it was the lower income workers within these communities who were facing the brunt of it. Um, and so much so that, you know, still to the, to this, to this day, employment rates for low income workers are still down by over 20%. Whereas for high income workers, in some sense, you know, the, the economic crisis is, is actually over, right? Employment rates for high income workers, you know, are back to pre-crisis levels. Um, so I think, you know, this, is exacerbating a lot of the inequality, you know, that we see in tools like the Opportunity Atlas, um, because this has been hitting low-income workers um, specifically hard. So, David, in that that COVID analysis, what are some of the like sort of key data points that stand out that that really make this story uh, stick? I think the biggest one really is that disparity in employment outcomes, right? So, low-income workers are still really struggling in this economy, and I think you know it's not certain. You know, as the recovery hopefully can, can, can continues, if we're going to see all these low wage jobs come back in the same way. So I think we really need to focus on supporting low income workers. I think another piece, and I think this really speaks to the long term implications of this crisis, is something that we're seeing in the education space. Um, so by using data from online learning platforms, something we've seen is that, right, Online engagement and progress in a particular math curriculum really dropped off significantly for low-income kids. And even after the summer break and through the through the fall and through the, the holidays, we're still seeing really significant gaps between low and high-income communities when it comes to education engagement. I think this is interesting because this is something that we actually didn't see before the crisis. We actually saw pretty similar levels on some of these platforms before the crisis, but we're now really seeing these differences in economic outcomes today. So, I mean, really, like these learning level, these kind of, you know, you know, learning loss rates, I think especially when we're already aware of inequities in the education system, I mean, those really have long-term implications, right? So when I think when we think about both the impact on low-income workers plus the impact on low-income students and, and families, I think this is really a recipe for some, you know, really poor outcomes in the long run, which again, I think are reflected in some of these outcomes that we already see in our government data in previous research. Another data point that, that I saw in the track the recovery was um, the effect on small businesses, which I think is another one where we've talked about kind of localities and uh, um, in some areas like New York City, certainly a lot of the, the hit to small business revenues has been 
really considerable. And if you think about, you know, what makes up the character of a community, right, that kind of leads to everything that you're capturing in your data, some of that is those small businesses. And, and a question is kind of how that will impact things in the in the medium to long term as well. Yeah, no, I think what was really interesting about what we saw in the data was that you know, it was actually a lot of these small businesses in some of the highest income com- communities that were hit hardest, right? So, so I live in New York, I live in, in Harlem. And when you look at the data for New York, right, if you actually go up a little bit um, north to the Bronx or to East Harlem, you know, obviously those, those communities were hit hard, but those small businesses, you know, didn't see as much of a drop in revenue and they didn't have to let go of as many employees. Whereas if you go into Manhattan, some of these really wealthy areas, right, we actually saw a much higher drop-offs in consumer spending. A lot more of those businesses had to shut down. And those workers and those restaurants and bars were actually hit much harder in certain ways, which I think is, is like a somewhat non-intuitive um, um, finding. But I think, you know, ultimately, I think what we really see is that, right, this is not a traditional economic recession, right? This is really being driven by the public health crisis, right? So, you know, there are different kinds of stimuli that we can give. We can kind of support businesses through this, but until we're really able to rebuild consumer confidence by just dealing with the virus, getting people vaccinated, moving past this, I think we're going to see the lingering effects. So I think, you know, I think the, the data really points to really getting a handle on the virus and making sure that we're handling the public health crisis so people can get back to their normal lives and patronizing these local companies. And that, that point uh, that you raise about the, the local business in the high income area uh, being most affected, like, so it's a, it's a double impact then because it's, it's the business in one area, uh, but then it's uh, those who own and, and operate those small businesses probably don't live in that area, right? They live elsewhere you know, in, in surrounding neighborhoods that are then affected uh, in a different way by this. Um, so one, I think, uh, am I understanding that right? And, and two, I'd like to, uh, to get into what the implications then are on the housing market as a result of that, and, and perhaps even how housing plays into uh, recovery. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's it's super interesting when, right, we see these businesses in these higher income communities, right, they get hit the hardest. But then to your, to your point, it doesn't necessarily just impact that, that geography, right? Because, you know, one, a lot of those em- employees, right, they don't live in that neighborhood, right? And so they're being impacted, they're losing their jobs, and they probably live in different parts of the city. So it really points to right, how this is all interconnected. And I think that when we think about the broader housing market, or I think when we think about there's the housing market, the, the response to COVID, but I think this general issue of economic mobility and opportunity more broadly. And I really think that housing is such an important intersection of all these issues, right? So we talk about that that learning loss, right? So in affordable housing, right? Do residents, do they have access to high quality broadband and devices, right? You know, you know are they getting access to what they need for students to be able to kind of you know participate in online in online learning. There's the regional level, right? You know, are we thinking about you know housing discrimination? Are we thinking about making sure that we're building more affordable housing in a diverse range of places so that we're not concentrating poverty? And then you know when when we are using affordable housing to revitalize neighborhoods, you know, are we making sure that those residents has ha- access to the programs and services that we know can kind of create you know better life outcomes, increase housing stability, right? So I think, you know, housing is kind of a nexus 
for all these different issues. And I th- and, and that's not even to kind of speak of the actual health implications of, of high quality housing as well and kind of making sure that, you know, people, you know, are able to socially distance, you know, you know, have access to good health care. And that these are places where, you know, housing is not exacerbating a crisis like COVID, but it's actually a place where people can kind of have, have respite and protection, right? I think, you know, housing is where all these things come together. And it's always great to see kind of, you know, you know, really innovative and thoughtful housing operators, you know, who one, no real estate, but like two, you know, have a handle on all these different issues and how they can support their residents as they're dealing with everything happening in the world around them. I'd love to get into that that more. You know, what are you seeing as things that, uh, you know, a good housing operator can do, you know, going above and beyond just providing a decent place to live? What what can they do to, to increase their impact and increase opportunities? So, Part of my job, which I think is a lot of fun, is I get to, you know, talk with folks who, you know, have questions about these things or are really trying out interesting things in general. And I think there's a few themes that that always come come up. I think one is the idea of mixed income housing, right, is, you know, actually kind of creating spaces that bring people together from diverse backgrounds and actually trying to kind of foster a sense of community and empowerment locally, right? And I think, you know, that can, you know, be done by, you know, actual staff who's on hand, like property management, um, who can actually kind of work to kind of create a sense of community. But I think there's also some quite innovative thought going on. And, you know, again, housing isn't going to be the be all and end all, but how do we actually leverage the resources and the assets in a community? And so like a program like CMTO, where there was an actual kind of housing counselor to help walk residents through or kind of, you know, help walk people through that housing search process, you know, what about kind of people on hand on properties who can help link residents of that development with the different resources that already exist within the community. And I think that's a really interesting model where, you know, you don't have to have every single program, service, or opportunity literally on site of the actual building, but how do you, you know, use staff to help link residents with all those assets that already exist within the community, you know, be they health, um, education. I think I think that's a really interesting space where it's it's both what's on site, but also linking folks with you know those resources that already exist in the community. I mean that I think is a really interesting space to explore more. Absolutely, no. There's such great points and and a lot of things uh, to think about building upon and 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 you know how does the industry scale that more and and uh, you know really increase uh, increase uh, opportunity and increase. Uh, beneficial outcomes. So David, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, uh, and, uh, we, I know we've, we've certainly enjoyed it and, and, uh, just looked at keeping inspired by everything you shared today about what we can do. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with y'all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac multifamily podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.